If you follow nutrition influencers on social media, then you may have heard someone say that eating soy products can tank your testosterone levels. But is that actually true? In this episode, we're going to dive into where this idea came from and if soy actually is bad for testosterone levels. Let's get started. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the eighth episode of the fourth season of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much. And the goal of this podcast is to keep you active and healthy through life through practical, actual information. So thanks so much for tuning by. I really appreciate it. Let's dive right in. So first of all, like I said, there's this idea on the interwebs, right? If you go on there, that soy, if you consume soy, you're just going to lose all your testosterone and just become weak and not have muscles. And like, that seems to be the pervasive idea. Obviously, that's not exactly what people are saying, but people are saying, if you eat soy, you will have increased estrogen and essentially you lose like all your masculine qualities. That's like, seems to be what some people say. Like, it's like the devil. Is that true? Like I said, well, let's go back. Let's take a step back. I, I was kind of curious, like where this came from. It seems like most of this comes back to a case, uh, a specific case report on gynecomastia with soy consumption. So gynecomastia is where you start to see excess breast tissue in males. So, right. Obviously that's not happening. And that can happen. That's a pretty common thing when you have increased estrogen in your body that can happen in males. So there was this paper, the title was an unusual case of gynecomastia association with soy product consumption. So like I said, in the title, it says unusual case, just a little spoiler there. But in this specific case, this dude was drinking like three liters of soy milk a day. So like enormous amount, like drinking three liters of anything other than water. Like I can't even like fathom doing that. Like just housing things left and right. But hey, dude probably thought it was healthy and was going for, but anyway, he was drinking like three liters of soy milk a day. And found out to have gynecomastia. So drinking that much comes up to about 300 milligrams of something called isoflavones, which we'll talk more about what those are, but 300 milligrams isoflavones when like 75 milligrams is kind of like the high dose. So like this guy's consuming more than four times what we'll consider like high normal. So like I said, consuming a lot. And unsurprisingly, given the gynecomastia, he was found to have estrogen levels that were like five to 10 times above the average. So that being said, that was kind of like the case report. And even the author said it was an unusual case, right? So they said, unusual case, this is interesting. But people just ran with it. They were like, oh dude, look how bad soy is. It can cause, you know, decreased testosterone, even increase your estrogen. Like it is terrible for you. Stay away from soy. It is toxic for you. So that's like, it seems to be where that started from and then kind of kept going from there. But before we go any further, I kind of want to break down like and talk about soy in general, right? So like, what is soy? I didn't know a lot about soy until like I was kind of looking at this topic and preparing for it, but it was really, it was really good to learn. So soy, we get these from, shocker, soybean plants. So not, not in a surprise there. When you're reading articles, specifically academic literature about this, you're going to see words like phytoestrogens and isoflavones. And like, what's the difference? Well, overall, the phytoestrogen, like a definition of that is that it is an estrogen-like compound that's derived from plants right? So we naturally have estrogen, right? Males and females both have estrogen. If you're a male and you haven't, you didn't know that you have estrogen. It's very important. plays a lot of critical functions. You have it. Sorry, deal with it. But phytoestrogens come from plants. So plant derived, you know, compounds that look like estrogen. Chemically, they are similar to estrogen. They are not estrogen, but they look like it. They're similar. Isoflavones, like essentially the definition of isoflavones or isoflavonoids, they are one of four com compounds that are classified as phytoestrogens. So essentially phytoestrogens is kind of this umbrella term. Underneath it, there's four different types of isoflavones. That's kind of how it fits in there. So kind of like a subcategory, these compounds that create these phytoestrogens. And like I said, because phytoestrogen, it looks like estrogen, that's where people think, hey, like this is linked to estrogen. This is what it is. And so yes, chemically, you know, structurally they might look similar, but like chemically, they don't appear to work the same as estrogen. So like what I mean by that, well, they don't, you don't see all this physiologic effects that you would normally see with estrogen, right? So they might um, not produce the same things you would think. If you give someone estrogen, you expect to see 
you know, X. If you give them phytoestrogens, they might not do that. These isoflavones, they have a higher affinity for the estrogen beta receptor, whereas the regular estrogen found naturally in our body prefers the alpha receptors. So we're giving it there. It doesn't necessarily mean we're binding the same thing. And also alpha and beta receptors are found in different tissues all throughout the body and then can exert different effects and sometimes even opposite effects. So like I said, if estrogen does one thing in, you know, the real life with the alpha receptor binding to beta, it might do the complete opposite. And so that's why it's, it's not slam dunk here. And like I said, the phytoestrogens seem to prefer the beta, whereas the natural one seems to prove the alpha. So they're, even though they, yes, they look similar and they do bind to quote unquote estrogen receptors, they're binding preferentially to different receptors. So that's just something to think about. So some people actually call these SERMs or selective estrogen receptor modulators, meaning they prefer one specific one. And SERMs are a whole different category of not only medications, talking about cancers and stuff, but also anabolic steroids. There's lots of this going on, but that's generally what we're talking about and why, you know, why this isn't like one-to-one. -one. You know, some people are saying, well, it looks like, if it looks like estrogen and it can bind estrogen receptor, like it's going to do everything. Like this is the reason, like the mechanism and like the plausibility is to like why we might not see those expected estrogen effects with soy. So just like I said, just kind of setting the table for that there. And then specifically, like where do we see these used a lot? In, well, in Asian countries, they eat a lot of soy, approximately, you know, 30 to 50 grams of soy a day. And like 25 grams um, is typically considered like a normal serving. So in each gram of soy has about 3.5 milligrams of isoflavones. So like I said, we're seeing a lot of consumption in Asia. That's pretty classic. But that being said, when you have these isoflavones, if you process it down and things like soy protein, a lot of times you lose isoflavone content. So just to think of kind of stepping back with soy in general, uh, see this a lot in Asian countries, but like I said, that's where we get a lot of this data from and where we see, you know, traditionally that's where it, it's coming and derived from. And obviously with the globalized world, it's just kind of moved everywhere. And so on top of that, right, we talked about, hey, it can bind to estrogen type receptors. What else, Kevin? Well, we know that estrogen can serve as a negative feedback for testosterone, right? Pretty strong. We've talked about that. So if there is more estrogen around, then we can also have less testosterone, right? So if you think when we go back to the physiology, it goes back, circles back higher levels in terms of like looking at the hypothalamus pituitary kind of saying, hey, estrogen says, hey, there's a lot of me around. I don't need more testosterone. So that's kind of what they do. And that's kind of one of the mechanisms for once again, why we're concerned, does soy raise estrogen and thus raising estrogen will that decrease testosterone? Like mechanistically that makes sense and that's plausible. So that's where it's coming from as well. And also there's rat studies showing that increased phytoestrogen consumption can lower testosterone. Once again, in rats that can be seen. And so from a gynecomastia perspective, right? So we talked about that. They had a couple of case reports of that. And obviously it's really scary. And they mentioned that, but what they don't mention is you can actually find studies showing that excess meat consumption can lead to that as well. But we don't hear about that, right? And that's, that doesn't fit the narrative that soy is bad. And like I said, I have no, I have no dog in this fight. Like I said, I eat, I'll eat both. Like I have no problem with that. Uh, but having said, you, you tend to see one narrative online, meaning that like soy causes this. It's like, well, actually like, could it be excess meat causes it too? That being said. The reason though, like I said, gynecomastia, increased proliferation of breast tissue in males, you know, androgens typically inhibit breast proliferation. And so that's why like testosterone, when people say like, oh, like if you have low testosterone, that's why if you're lower testosterone, yeah, we don't have that inhibitor anymore, right? And that's what we lead to that gynecomastia. And so it does, like I said, it can happen. There are reports of this happening, but it seems to be in pretty high doses of the isoflavone. So pretty high up there. And so what would be a testosterone talk if we didn't talk about erectile dysfunction as well? So we're talking about, does soy affect erectile dysfunction? We'll talk about it. 
it's thought that E2, so there's different types of estrogen. So E2, which is one of the kinds, or estradiol, there's a ratio to that testosterone. That may play a big role in erections. And with rising estrogen and lower testosterone, that can throw that off, right? That's the idea. There were some rat studies that also implicated that large doses of ibuflavones may impair erectile function. But once again, these like rats were getting like 100 times their body weight in doses, which is like insane. So like I said, mechanistically, sure, it's an idea. How transferable is that? Probably not. Um, one thing that kind of can reassure you a little bit is there were some studies looking at androgen deprived of prostate cancer patients. So essentially we were like, Hey, you can't get androgens cause your cancer is you know, essentially fueled by this. So they kind of shut that down. They also have a high intake of isoflavones in this specific study, and they had no like beneficial or harmful effects on libido or erectile function in these patients. So like I said, if this is like the most extreme example where they're essentially like limiting all androgens in this setting and they're not having an effect on the libido, like does you know, estrogen play a huge role in erections. Like, I'm not sure. And so people might be like, well, how long do these studies need to be, right? Like how many months and years do they have to be? Well, actually they don't have to be that long. It seems like the data shows that hormone values can change pretty darn quickly. So you don't need a very long time to determine if there's a change. So like in these studies that we're looking at when people eat soy and consume them and see what they're doing with their hormones, which we'll get to, we don't need to do this for years and years and years because we would extrapolate that, hey, like, once we get the changes initially, which take pretty quickly, once we have those, like that's what we'd expect to see if we continue to eat this, you know, standard dosing of soy or whatever. So you don't necessarily do them so long. Obviously, if you're looking at soy outcomes, yes, then we need to keep them forever. But if you're looking at levels of different hormones, then we don't need that long of studies. And so the million dollar question is like, does this actually raise estrogen? There are some studies that did show a significant increase. You know, that is, I'm not denying that, but a lot of times in those studies, they were still within the normal reference range. So that you might be shaking your head, like how can something be significant, but then like still be normal? Well, if you think about statistically significant, just means there is more, there's some signal in the noise. So essentially what we're saying is, Hey, there is a substantial change from the baseline, right? So we expect the baseline here and we see some change. And that is, you know, by using mathematics and stats, like that is significant. Meaning like, yes, we see a definitive trend saying this seems to be different. Like when you are eating soy, that can increase your estrogen, but by how much? And is that clinically important, right? So like statistically versus clinically important, that's always the biggest thing. And so if we get something that's statistically important, like, okay, cool, that's great. But is it clinically important? Let's say like, you know, for example, if you just have a any sort of lab and the reference range is from one to ten, we'll just make it easy. And you went from two to four, and that you know seems like a huge increase. The number is big and it's statistically significant, but then like does it mean anything clinically? And the answer is probably not. And that's kind of what we're getting at here. Is like doesn't seem to be huge. It's not like we're just shooting estrogen through the roof. At least it doesn't seem that way. Well, what about soy and fertility? Right, we've talked about soy and then testosterone and estrogen. Like what about fertility? Well, once again, it comes from the idea that estrogens in our environment may be potentially decreasing our sperm counts. That's been kind of a hypothesis people have put out there, and there's been lots of animal studies suggesting that as well, and even some human studies showing that a environmental estrogens may be decreasing sperm count. That's possible. And so we know that estrogen also does play a role in sperm production. So once again, all these things mechanistically can definitely happen. And isoflavones, when you're looking in vitro, can affect sperm negatively. So in vitro, isoflavones might decrease sperm function um, and negatively affects reproductive health in animals. Like I said, that can, that can happen. There are epidemiologic studies implicating soy and a decrease in sperm in infertile men. Like I said, but once again, this study is looking at infertile men. So people who are infertile are trying to figure out, hey, is there an association? But so yes, there seems to be an association with soy 
potentially in the infra men, but it seems that it's most greatly affects those who are already normal sperm concentrations and then still stay in the normal range. So once again, like that estrogen increase, we did see a statistically significant difference only it's still in the normal range. So same thing here, we're looking at sperm and say, yeah, we seem to see a decrease potentially in there, but it was still normal. So is it significant? I don't know. It didn't seem to affect those with low sperm concentration either. So it was just those already normal. So those who are already low, like at a baseline and they had soy, it didn't seem to lower it even more. It just seemed like, Hey, when you were in a normal range, it decreased a little bit. What is, what does that actually mean? Like, I don't know. All I know is there doesn't seem to be substantial evidence that it inhibits fertility. It doesn't seem that mechanistically possible and plausible, um, but doesn't seem like it's slammed on evidence by any, by any way, shape or form. And so what is a typical dose of soy, right? So typically a high dose around the day is 75 milligrams isoflavones, which is about three servings. We talked about that before, how that one person was drinking uh, soy milk by you know the liters and was substantially above that 75. But that's kind of like the higher level. And inside the data, it seems that looking up to even that level, there didn't seem to be lots of significant changes. And we'll kind of go into like the big meta-analysis that we'll talk about here. And that's kind of highlighting that overall looked at about 41 studies. Uh, there are about 1700 people. And so what they looked at there where they looked at levels of sex hormone binding globulin. So SHBG, which we've talked about before, total testosterone, free testosterone, um, E2 or estradiol and E1 or esterase with soy consumption, right? So they're matching this. They're saying, Hey, people who consume soy, what does it do to their hormone levels? Right? Cause that's the biggest thing. We are not, this is not necessarily outcome saying like, Hey, this produces this. We're saying, Hey, mechanistically, is this even plausible by increasing all these levels? So they looked at random meta-analysis overall, they found that the, there was no real effect of soy on hormone concentration. So no significant effects of soy or isoflavones on any of the hormones. And so, like I said, the reason I like this study is because it's not only looking at testosterone, but it's looking at SHGB, it's looking at free testosterone and it looks at estrogens too, right? So some people are like, oh, well, who cares about testosterone? It might just raise your estrogens. It didn't seem to do that either. And so, except, I don't know, it's it's not, except to me that is reassuring that like, okay, we're not going through the roof. Like obviously, you know, things different and, and everyone's an individual, but to me, that's pretty reassuring. And the question might be then like, how do we explain these case studies then, right? These person ate a lot of this thing and why do we get gynecomastia or increased estrogen? Like, like what happens? Like, it's a great question, but we have to remember that individuals are gonna individual, right? They're gonna do their own thing. You never know what's gonna happen. You can't predict someone's specific response to a food or any treatment or anything. So we have to have like an understanding that, hey, things might be different and you might be more sensitive to soil than someone else. It's the same thing. If you are getting a medication, you might have, some crazy side effects that someone else doesn't have. So like you are an individual and you will have a different reaction than everybody else to any sort of intervention that you undertake, period. That's how it goes. And the same thing goes for soy. We don't know. Case studies are a fantastic tool that helps us bring up questions and so that we can do bigger studies. And that's pretty much what's happened here is, hey, like, whoa, what's going on with this gynecomastia? And then we've kind of studied like, okay, mechanistically, I can do this. Like, do we see that in real life? And like, doesn't seem that. And like, that's what we did. We found that on aggregate, it doesn't seem to do anything to your sex hormones. Like I said, just looking at on aggregate, does that mean that it can't happen? And you know, that we, you know, this absolutely can't happen. No, of course not. Obviously we've seen instances where high intake of soy can lead to some of those things. It can happen. It just seems that in general and in, in aggregate, it doesn't seem like it's very likely to happen. And so I don't think we should demonize a food for everybody when in whole, it doesn't look like that. Like I said, for you, that may 
be a big thing. It may be a big deal and it may have an effect on you. That's cool. But the, the totality evidence indicates that I wouldn't think someone would have that. So, but like I said, we have to kind of take an individual approach and look at there. So my take here, like overall, I'm not really worried about soy. Like for me, this is not a big thing. Even, and even if my question for you is, even if all the data doesn't convince you, meaning like, does this still pass the sniff test? So the sniff test is like, does it make sense? And obviously, yes, mechanistically, absolutely. And there are studies showing like these things that can happen and absolutely, but like overall, in the aggregate, what is it doing? Like, how does it affect you, right? Are we having clinically sitting, obviously it's one thing for, hey, estrogen levels were raised. Like, did that matter clinically? Like in terms of, did it manage, you know, affect their fertility? Did it affect their libido? Did it affect any sort of outcome? Like I said, it's hard to know. But that being said, I also wanna ask the question like, okay, like, do we know, you know people who've consumed soy and don't have testosterone issues? Like, of, of course you do. Like the vast majority of people who eat soy don't have a big issue with it. So you might say like, well, Jordan, that's that's just an outlier. Like that doesn't count. I would, you know, I would expect the more soy they eat, the less testosterone they have. Like, well then like my counter argument would be like, well, that's exactly what happens with the cases of gynecomastia. They're also outliers. Obviously they consumed a lot, but like they had individual responses. And maybe like, you know, if you're saying that someone who has soy who doesn't have low testosterone is an outlier, then, you know, maybe people who have low testosterone while eating soy actually are the outliers on the other side. And overall, like in the middle, it's probably not a big deal for most people. Like I said, individuals are always going to have different responses. And so overall, even up to like 75 milligrams isoflavones or three servings seem to be fine per day. And I think most people in America are probably not getting that, um, like I say, for the standard American diet or health conscious diet. I think a lot of people, it's probably not the most common source of protein unless you're eating a plant-based diet. So, but overall, three servings a day, it still thing looks like fine. Like I said, if you consume insane amounts of that, there might be issues. Yeah. But otherwise mixing into an otherwise healthy dietary pattern doesn't seem to be like a big idea. And like I said, I just think there's, there's this is definitely one where like, I think you have way bigger fish to fry. If you're obsessed about soy, then you should waste more time concerned about literally like so many other things. Like I'm not saying it's not important. Like I, that's, I'm talking an entire podcast about this and ranting because I've seen it and understand it. But like, for me, this is just not a huge one. If you, if you adam, feel adamantly that like soy is bad, Hey man, you do not have to eat soy. Like I, there's, I'm not going to hold the gun up to your head and say, you got to eat soy. Like that is not how it works. But that being said, if you, if you know, you feel like it is part of your diet and you want to continue it, then I would have no problem with that. Obviously, you know, if things happen, you have other signs and symptoms or concerns like, yeah, talk with your doctor, figure it out. But on the aggregate, most people are going to be fine. So like if, if you keep it moderate, you're going to be fine. So it's good. That's a lot of me ranting about that. I apologize. But overall, like I said, I just don't like demonizing specific foods unless we have to right? Like if we're talking about high fructose corn syrup or trans fats, maybe those would be ones where we're like, okay, like we think we don't universally agree, not good for things. But like I said, this one's just like, it's just really not worth you losing sleep over. If you want to eat some soy, great. If you don't, that's fine too. You can have high, high, you know, healthy dietary patterns doing multiple different things. that does not have to include soy. So like I said, having said, am I wrong? Tell me in the comments, like on the YouTube video, if you think soy is killing people's testosterone, please let me know. Like I said, maybe I'm not aware of something, but overall, like I said, I tend to sit on a pretty neutral approach for most things. So for me, I'm just not super convinced that it makes much difference one or another. But either way, if you made it this long, thank you for listening or watching. I appreciate it. If you enjoy this, if you left a five-star rating on any podcast app that you listen to, that would be awesome. And like I said, really appreciate the love and, and it means so much that you, you spend some time with me. So, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. And now get off your phone, get outside and we'll see you next time. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. 
The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.